This is Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine, the most listened to podcast for parents by parents. Welcome to Back Talk. Today, our expert guests are Dr. Sylvia Owusu Ansa, who is the assistant professor of pediatrics of a major children's hospital in Pittsburgh and Chuck Davis, the founder and the principal data scientist of Bayesian, a provider of COVID-19 analytics to state and local governments. We are discussing the COVID-19 vaccine for Black families. I welcome you both to the show. Let me ask you a question about um, our community, Black community. Uh, For the most part, we're weary and suspicious, to say the least, about any government health initiative, which I'm sure you both can understand considering We've been experimented on from GYN experiences, uh, experiments, I should say, to the most infamous Tuskegee syphilis experiment on black men. So I keep seeing that referred to on social media. And because the vaccine came out so fast, many are resistant to being the first in line to get it. And they're taking a wait and see approach. So let me start with Chuck. Why should we, as the black community, get in line to get this vaccine? Yeah. Uh, by the way, thank you for, for having me. Um, you know, it's, it's a great question, given, uh, you know, the, the history that uh, we have with the medical establishment. Um, you know, the, the simplest way to, to answer that is um, because we're dying at a greater um, at a greater in greater numbers um, than um, than our, our counterparts uh, with this disease um, for hospitalizations within the African-American community, we're 3.7 uh, times uh, more likely to be hospitalized. Um, and we're almost three times more likely to die of this disease. So um, if there's anything that can, uh, that can, that can help, um, you know, this vaccine, uh, and, there are, and it's important, I, I know that we'll talk about this, there are actually uh, you know, two variants of the vaccine now um, and a third that will be coming online shortly. And there are differences between them. Um, but if we can um, reduce our hospitalizations and our, and our deaths, um, we actually should be, you know, arguably um, probably first in line to get this vaccine. Absolutely. Now, um, you said there is a third. I know about the second, which is supposedly easier to get, correct? What is the third one? So the third vaccine um, that is being considered right now is the uh, uh, the the AstraZeneca uh, Oxford uh, vaccine, and so there are um, different levels of, of efficacy. The first uh, the first vaccine, the mRNA vaccine that we're familiar with, which is the uh, Moderna vaccine and the and the Pfizer vaccine, those two, they roughly are about. Uh, have the same effectiveness around between 95%, 94%, 95% uh, is typically the numbers that are that are used. Um, the AstraZeneca um, vaccine uses a different um, different method uh, to actually create the vaccine. And so far, it's proving to be not as effective as the other two vaccines. Um, but what you're what you're trying to do is just get more um, vaccine out there so that we can begin to be vaccinated. Um, as you as you know, um, there have been close to 20 million or so, or close to 200, um, or 20 million um, uh, vaccines in terms of distribution, um, and only um, 2 million uh, or so uh, doses actually given. 
So we're behind in terms of the amount of vaccine that, that we want to see um, um, distributed and, and actually going into people's arms. So it's one thing to create a vaccine. It's another thing to actually get it in people's arms or we'll do it good. Okay, so we have Pfizer, Moderna, and Oxford. Okay, great to know. All right, I'll ask, I'm going to ask you too about the um, mutant strains in, in, at the end of the show. I want to know a little bit about that and if the vaccine is effective against the, the new strain that came out, which I kind of referred to by accident because I misunderstood your uh, point, but now we know there are three different vaccines that will be coming out. Dr. Sylvia, why should we get this vaccine? So again, thank you for the opportunity to revisit, to come back again. I'm very honored. Um, I, I support what Mr. Davis is saying. Um, for our particular community, first, I, I want to own the distrust. Uh, it's, it's valid. It's real. Um, you previously mentioned Tuskegee. Um, you know, uh, Henry, Henrietta Lacks is another uh, component of that. There, there's a list that can go on forever. Um, but, but the reality is that COVID exist, it is real, and is affecting our community um, above levels of any other racial or ethnic group, meaning um, the underrepresented group, meaning Black, African-American, Latinx, and Native American populations, as Mr. David quoted, 3.7 times to three times the rate for hospitalizations and um, deaths. We recently lost a wonderful family practice uh, physician by the name of Dr. Susan Moore in Indiana uh, from COVID. Um, so, so it is very real. And one of the ways we, that we can effectively really combat this um, is the vaccine. In addition to doing the th continuing the three W's, which is to uh, wear a mask, wash your hands, and watch your distance. I do want to let the community know as well is that, you know, What's different from these trials as compared to previous trials, specifically, let's talk about the Tuskegee um, experiment where, um, where African-American males were prevented from getting uh, a medication that could cure them from a particular ailment, uh, in, this, in this case, syphilis. For these particular vaccine trials, um, there's multicultural trials, multi um, uh diversified trials, meaning that there were people from various backgrounds who were part of putting this vaccine together and who, for lack of a better term, the vaccine was tested on. So that included Black folks, that included Latinx folks, that included some Native Americans. So it wasn't particular to a population. Um, and those who, uh, and, and people weren't withheld from getting something that actually worked um, in an unethical manner. Uh, the other thing to think about that I know is on many people's minds is why so fast? It just seems uh, to, you know, we've heard that vaccines can take decades uh, to come to fruition. And, and what I usually explain is this is what happens when, when science really works and comes together. Uh, you have to think that COVID um, is one of the worst pandemics in in the past 100 years uh, that, that any one of us has ever experienced, and in particular, our community, um, in the way of, you know, even more so, uh, we're affected to some degree, even more so than, than HIV in, in some aspects, um, especially in this, in this current stance. And so um, it became a priority globally. So many scientists came together globally, many pharmaceutical companies came together globally. So for instance, the Pfizer vaccine is in combination with a German company called BioNTech. Um, so this is one of the first times in history where we've seen scientists come together for one goal and one mission. And when you have that and you follow regulations and protocols, and there's not an additional obstacles to get to the finish line, this is what happens. And so 
um, that that is that is part of the reassurance. The other reassurance is that you know during the trials, every there were multiple different racial groups that that were tested for the vaccine. The vaccine was tested through. Uh, regulations in which it su- was supposed to be did not skip any steps, and, and the most pertinent point is that we're dying from from COVID. Meaning the the black community, we are we are dying from COVID, and uh, and I, I'm witness to it. Okay, uh, I read somewhere uh, that um, they needed more trials with um, Asian groups and African American groups. Is it indeed as effective on the black community? as it is for the white community? And either of you can answer that. How about we start with Chuck? Do you want to address it? Sure. So in looking at the in looking at the uh, trial data, um, the, the vaccine appeared to be effective uh, unilaterally across all of the groups. It's important to understand okay. that um, when we see uh, COVID deaths, um, the, the, the deaths uh, and the hospitalizations as it relates to COVID, those are, those are due to what we call um, uh, determinants of health or social determinants of health. And so um, social determinants of health are, are, are pretty important because that's um, you know, your, your health. When we think about our health, um, our health is typically uh, about 11% of, of um, what happens with us health-wise is really related to um, is really related to um, uh, what happens when we go and we see a doctor. Um, the vast majority of, of our health is due to um, behavioral conditions, social uh, conditions, and then our genetics. Um, so um, luckily, uh, thankfully, the, uh, the vaccine appeared to be pretty effective across um, you know, all, all ethnic groups. Um, but because of our um, social conditions, individual behaviors, um, what we see is we see this clustering um, for mortality and hospitalization uh, within within the different ethnic groups. Okay. okay. Now, Dr. Sylvia, we talked back in January about the coronavirus and what parents needed to know. We spoke on this uh, before most people in the United States were even concerned about it. You know, so. I want to tell our listeners to make sure they subscribe because we're on top of things before yeah. even the mainstream media, right? You were. <laughs> that was superb. Right? Yes, you were. Yeah. Well, we're looking out here for the black family and for the children. So I'm just going to encourage people who are listening or watching to hit that subscribe button and make sure that you uh, stay on top of the news for your community and support us. I also suggest that you go and find the podcast because some of that information is still relevant today. You will also see how far we've come with the COVID virus and how much that we had predicted has now come true. So I just want to say that. Now, it's a mystery to most people what's in this vaccine, as it is for most drugs that we willingly take, you know, like um, Tylenol. We don't know what's in it. We know it's acetaminophen, but we don't know what that means, okay? (laughs) So in layman terms, how does this vaccine work? And is it a live virus? Can you address that, Dr. Sylvia? Yeah, so I can address that. I'll start off by taking that I did receive. Um, it's up, actually coming up to three weeks. I'm coming to my uh, second shot. Uh, coming up to three weeks ago, I did receive the, what's known as the Pfizer vaccine. That was a company that I said uh, worked with a German company called BioNTech. Um, the two um, vaccines that are currently out uh, through Pfizer and Moderna or we use what's called mRNA. So mRNA 
is a component, a piece of our cell machinery um, that helps to to make proteins. Um, so it, in order to even talk about vaccinations, we kind of have to talk a little bit about the immune system. So I'm going to back up a little bit and, then, and I'm going to admit I'm a little bit of a nerdy geek. Uh, I studied biochemistry and immunology um, when I was in college and I love um, how, how the immune system works. So we have to look at the immune system as it, it is our military. It is, is, it is our defense. It's the defense for the body, the ultimate defense for the body. Um, and it starts off with the skin. Um, and it's, it's an amazing um, machinery that we don't think about every day because we fight off germs every day in our bodies. And it, it's amazing uh, how little we are, we get sick uh, because of our immune system is constantly fighting off bacteria, viruses, parasites, um, and it's only in those certain instances where the immune system may be worn down a little bit that we end up being susceptible. So kind of like the military that maybe doesn't have their guard up um, in certain circumstances and get susceptible to the enemy coming in. And so the immune system on its own does an incredible, incredible, incredible job uh, fighting off infection and keeping us healthy throughout most of our lives. Um, and there are numerous types of cells that help with that. Um, but sometimes we need a little bit of help um, in fighting off the enemy, just like the military. Um, you know, for those who are, you know, remember history, you know, um, a lot of times multiple countries would come in, in this case of world, worlds, world wars, to help each other fight off uh, a common enemy. And that's how I view the vaccine. That's basically what the vaccine is. The vaccine um, is a common friend that comes in to help boost our immune system, help rev up our immune system to fight off various infections. What happens when we're first introduced to an infection, such as a virus per se, um, the body sends off signals to warn, warn the rest of the body that, hey, we have an intruder in here and we need to do something. And they get their resources ready to fight off that germ or particular virus in this case. And in, in bodies that the virus has never been before, it takes quite a while. It can take a few days to even weeks for the immune system to be able to fight off that virus adequately. Um, and so that's why you see some people, you know, particularly with a the coronavirus, they get sick. Um, some people are able to fend it off quickly. Some people it takes weeks. Some people they get really, really sick because uh, the immune system takes a while to rev up against it. Um, what the vaccine does is to help the immune system identify that virus before the actual virus comes. So it actually acts like um, a mimicry of the virus. And so it enables the immune system to rev up against this fake um, kind of um, look of the virus. It's not the virus itself um, and, and build up the tools that it needs to fight off the infection. So if the real virus comes into your body, it's ready to fight and you're less likely to get devastatingly sick from it. Uh, so you asked specifically what's in the vaccine itself. And so many vaccines that we know, especially for parents uh, in childhood, we're very familiar with um, the names of diseases like polio and measles. And we've heard the term live virus or live attenuated virus. What does that mean? And so when we started doing um, working on immunizations, you know, about 50 plus years ago, or even we, go, we can go back um, 100 plus years, um, when people started to trial, uh, they would take pieces of the actual, the actual virus. So the virus itself, 
either slow it down or like a live portion of the virus in small, small quantities, hoping that it wouldn't actually infect a human being to basically get the immune system ready to fight off the virus in case if somebody got infected, um, the immune system would be ready and would be able to fight um, um, if there's a higher viral load. Um, Issues with of live vaccines is that if your immune system is not up to par in part, it is part of the virus, the actual virus itself. And so there is a small, small risk that the virus itself can infect your body. If your immune system is not, is not ready for it. What is different about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is that these are not live virus vaccines. There is not a component of the live virus. There is a piece of the virus that is not alive. Um, that the immune system thinks is the virus acts towards it like the virus. Um, so that if you were infected with the virus, you can actually fight it off. And so what do I mean in, in long term? And so what that means is that the viruses that we have affordable to us today for coronavirus cannot mutate into the virus or not become the virus within our bodies. Uh, that is not possible. That is different from uh, vaccines uh, from earlier days when we were first starting to learn about vaccines. And so it is pretty much impossible to obtain coronavirus from the vaccine itself. What I do want to clarify and what the, where the confusion comes is, again, as I explained the immune system, it does take a while for the immune system to get fully equipped and ready to fight off any germ. And so as you're getting vaccinated and in that process, if we're not continuing to practice our three W's, wash your hands, watch your distance, and wear your mask, and we happen to get exposed to the COVID uh, coronavirus or COVID-19, and it is possible if that our immunity is not fully rubbed up yet to get coronavirus from others within the population, but you're not going to get coronavirus from the vaccine itself. And so there's been news out there of healthcare workers who received the vaccine, but then got coronavirus. It's not from the vaccine. The vaccine takes quite a few weeks to work and the vaccines that we have available to us, we need two shots, three weeks apart. And so you're really not immune until about six to eight weeks after the entire process is done. So within that period of time, um, and Mr. Davis, you can correct me potentially with the numbers, but within, within that period of time, you are still somewhat susceptible to the coronavirus. But in all clarification, the vaccine itself cannot cause you to get to have, I should say, coronavirus. Okay. Okay. Uh, Chuck, would you like to piggyback on that or anything that she said there? Sure. Well, um, just one slight modification. uh, In some instances, when you uh, receive the vaccine, um, usually within, uh, you know, 10 days or so, um, you, you produced enough antibody response to where you do have some um, some protection, um, but at the at the same time, um, you know, just like uh, Dr. Wasiwaza said, um, you absolutely have to still um, follow the the three W's of watching your distance, wearing a mask, and, and washing your hands. Um, one thing I, I would want to add is uh, we talk a lot about um, vaccines, and vaccines are definitely a game changer. Um, there, there's no question about it. Um, the the issue that we that we have um, really comes a- around the fact that this virus is behavioral. Um, and when I say behavioral, what I mean is that 
what we do um, dictates the course of the virus. The virus isn't, you know, a, a person. It doesn't have an agenda. It's not a Republican or a Democrat. You know, it's 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 a it's a fragment. And, you know, our discipline um, really uh, dictates what's going to happen and also our social conditions. So what we see in the African-American community uh, and the Latinx community, I mean, typically the, 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 the by and large, the working backbone of this country is that we oftentimes have to work. Um, oftentimes we're, we, we don't have um, the, the same means to effectively social distance. So a lot of what we have to do is uh, really around risk mitigation, figuring out that, um, you know, or harm reduction, as we call it, figuring out um, if you do have to take certain risks, how can you best protect yourself and, uh, and, and, and your loved ones? So I know it's somewhat of a, of a tangent, but, uh, you know, it's just so important to understand that what we're doing is really shaping the course of this pandemic. Um, you know, when it's going to end, um, for instance, uh, lots of people, you know, wonder now that we have a, a vaccine, when is this going to be over? Um, and it's really important to understand that, um, you know, the new year has come. Just because it's 2021 doesn't mean that the that 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 COVID went out with 2020. It's nothing has changed. It's still here, and we have vaccines that are just now coming um, on board, and we're still going through the tiers of distribution to get it to people. When you when you look at all of those things, um, and also the fact that you know we have people again behavior. Hey, 2021, I'm going to party like it's 1999. People were out there and they were getting together, and so we're going to have a Christmas surge. That's that's going to happen because people did get together, they did travel. That's behavioral. That's a conscious choice that people made. And what happened is that well, what will happen is we're going to see increased numbers of death and we're going to see well i should say backwards we're going to see increased hospitalizations and then we're going to also see increased numbers of, of of death because people um really couldn't follow the discipline uh of, of not getting together and 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 when they did they did so in an unsafe fashion the same thing is going to happen for new year so we're going to have a surge on top of a surge and then things hopefully will start to get um We'll get better. We'll hopefully get better. Um, but all of the modeling um, that we're doing, because we look at behavior um, as well, tells us that we're going to be dealing with with COVID um, in terms of uh, in terms of the same level of response, probably to the fall of next year. Wow. So summer vacations. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say that summer vacations are gone. It's just that, um, you know, things will get better because we're we're going to start to see vaccinations, but the vaccinations will come in tears. So, um, and then the issue has been that the federal government um, basically financed these, these, these vaccines um, and the development of these vaccines, but, and, and they come up with a distribution plan for those vaccines, but it's basically as though someone, you know, dropped, um, you know, a package off at your door and, and said, okay, you know, basically, uh, and I've heard a good analogy, I'm going to borrow it, um, where someone, uh, you know, drops a, an Ikea, uh, you know, some Ikea furniture off at your door and says, okay, I delivered the furniture, but you got to build it. And that's what's happened at the state level. So states are trying to figure out 
you know, how do we um, how do we engage in this huge vaccination effort, something that they at this scale that they've never had to do before. And then you have, you know, how do we figure out what groups that they we, So we're trying to do it in ways where we're looking at um, um, health equity, trying to correct for issues in, in the past, making sure the right people get it. You've probably heard stories about rich people trying to jump the line and call their doctors and, you know, hey, I donated money. So, you know, I want to be able to get the vaccine, which ought to be a hint to, to us. If we see rich folks out there trying to get the vaccine, then I probably, then I probably want that vaccine too. Uh, but it's, 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 you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's complicated and it's going to take time to work, work out. So we just can't say, okay, we're going to rely solely on a vaccine. A vaccine is a factor. It's a huge factor. And I would definitely encourage, um, you know, people to get it. One last thing, um, and you know, COVID-19 has become the singular leading cause of death. Uh, in, in this in this country, um, you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, we just recently um, did some work and, uh, and and did a study, and it turns out when we looked at it locally, um, we found that uh, that COVID was six and a half times the suicide rate. It was eight and a half times the homicide rate. Um, when people say, "Well, COVID's like the flu," um, no, it's not. Um, COVID, uh, in the study that we did, it was uh, 58.3 times um, uh, more lethal than the flu in terms of deaths. And, and to do this, um, we looked at uh, the death records for the last seven years and looked at every cause of death and then we looked at, at, at COVID to see where, where it ranked. Um, Can you say that again, that number again, how much more deadly? Just 50, so emphasize. 58 times. So people wow. die of the flu. I mean, you know, we, I mean, uh, every year and we probably, you know, know of friends or, you know, older people that get the flu and die. But COVID has killed, at least in this study that we did, it was localized uh, population of about 758,000 people. But it uh, but COVID and it's not even done yet um, has has killed uh, 58 times the number of people um, that died of the flu. And, and just to give you an idea, we think about, well, I, I've heard people say, things like when they start to play amateur statistician, well, you know, um, you know, I could die in a car accident. Uh, yes, you could. Um, but uh, COVID uh, actually killed uh, five times as many people that have died in car accidents. Uh, and by the way, it's just the transportation category. So that's car accidents, pedestrian versus car, boat, bus, plane, anything that you can get into to get you from point A to point B. If you, if, if you died that way, COVID killed five times as many people. So this is this is real. It's not made up. It's not like well. And I've heard other things like people say, well, they're making up the deaths. I'm, and I've heard this at the barber shop, right? I mean, when you when when I could go, um, you know, they're making up the deaths. These deaths aren't aren't real. They're saying everything is attributed to COVID. No, um, like I said, we've looked at the actual death records, and sure, someone might die of heart failure, but it is a cycle. They they come in with COVID. Um, they, uh, they develop a pneumonia, um, they become hypoxic because they can't breathe. And then because they can't breathe, the, the cause of death is COVID, but the, but the, but the manner of death might be cardiac arrest. So it's all COVID. They didn't, you know, they didn't have the cardiac, they wouldn't have had the cardiac arrest if it wasn't for the fact that they couldn't breathe. Um, so again, it's just really important to understand that there's so much misinformation out there and myths and we're looking at the data 
um, and looking at how it affects our community. And it's real. Right. Well, Chuck, you've been working on assessing COVID risks for state and local governments and working with others on vaccination priorities for certain individuals and communities and to understand why minority communities have suffered the most. So in what you've seen so far or what you're working toward, who is a priority priority besides the frontline workers to get this vaccine? Who should get it? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, to your point, frontline frontline workers uh, with respect to health care, because they're have they have a lot of contact with people that have COVID. So if we lose our, our frontline health care workers, um, we're in deep, deep trouble uh, because we don't have people um, to be able to treat COVID. Um, next in line, in, in terms of in terms of equity, would be those people that are, um, you know, largely essential workers, and, and well, and also older people, um, and and people that are in congregate settings. So, people that are in skilled nursing facilities. That's where we've had the majority of our outbreaks. So they're in that top tier as well. Um, and then you can start to. I mean, and there have been um, different groups. Um, that are comprised of doctors, uh, bioethicists, and the like that have gotten together to to discuss these things. What our data is showing is that uh, within the African American community, for instance, we tend to die younger of COVID, um, and the same is true in the Hispanic community. Uh, in the Caucasian community, um, for instance, um, you know, COVID tends to um, uh, affect. Um, men in terms of a, what we call severe uh, disease um, and, and larger in larger numbers than women in terms of getting severe disease where um, where you have a real issue. Um, we're finding that in our data um, that uh, women um, in the Hispanic community and the African-American community, um, their numbers are, are, are higher in terms of severe disease as opposed to as opposed to men um, when compared to other groups. So. I really do think that in terms of equity, as we get to these different tiers, um, that we really need to look at mortality. If you have um, black folks and you have the Latinx uh, community um, seeing three times and four times the number of hospitalizations and three times the number of, of death, then maybe that ought to be the, the prioritization uh, or part of the prioritization um, uh, calculus that you that you use. and. With a lot of the health metrics uh, that people are looking at, um, you know that is that is the case. But it, it remains to be seen um, exactly how that's going to play out. So I think that in our community we need to advocate for the vaccine, and we need to advocate and make sure that we ask for it and that we get it and that we make it a priority. And part of that is distribution to areas that are underserved. We talk about food deserts. We don't want to have vaccine deserts. Um, you know, we have to understand that within these communities, it's oftentimes harder um, to, to, to get to the vaccine. We need to look at efforts um, where perhaps we mobilize the vaccine and take it directly into the community. And so that's going to happen on a individual, you know, local, localized mm -hmm. uh, way. I live in California, um, so uh, I know that we have very specific efforts here. Somewhere else, they might not have the same infrastructure or or the like. So it, it's going to be a patchwork just because we haven't had a, for, a, a federal plan to formulate how we roll this out. Dr. Sylvia, in pediatrics, what have you seen regarding how the virus has affected children? So great. So thanks for asking. Um, I would like to say um, 
in, in a kind of a bittersweet way um, compared to most pandemics overall globally. And um, I could say locally within my jurisdiction, um, we are seeing more and more children who are being affected by coronavirus, but we're still seeing predominantly mild to moderate disease. So less so of um, children who require going into the intensive care units to get care, being put on a breathing machine. We're not seeing so much of that in the pediatric population still, as much as we're seeing in the adult population. That being said, in the fall, uh, a wonderful colleague of mine, Dr. Monica Goyle, uh, uh, did a study uh, in the D.C. area and noted, again, there's a significant health disparity for children of color um, and uh, the rates uh, of the coronavirus and comorbidities within. And so um, children of color are more likely to uh, get coronavirus. They're more likely to be sicker from coronavirus. Um, and so health disparities still remain in the pediatric population, unfortunately. And so, so the, you know, to, to uh, Mr. Davis's point, um, you know, we really, really, really need to hone in on our community on um, health disparities, education, looking at social determinants of health, um, mitigating uh, vaccine um, droughts or uh, um, lack of lack of areas where there's vaccine, really um, talking to our community because not only are our young adults being affected, but our children are being seen uh, at higher rates um, still. And so that, that is still very concerning. And we already know uh, when it comes to social determinants of health, many of our children of color already suffer significant comorbidities. Uh, and we talked about this about a year ago with asthma, right? Um, and so children with asthma, uh, black children with asthma in particular, more so than any racial group, are more likely, about three times more likely to be hospitalized for asthma and have significantly higher death rates outside of COVID. Um, the same goes for mental health, which we don't talk about a lot in the, in the black uh, community um, uh, for children. Um, and so there's already, uh, numerous health disparities uh, within our um, uh, Black community for children that we were battling prior to COVID. And many have heard that COVID has been the great revealer. And unfortunately, unfortunately for us, the same health disparities we're seeing with COVID in children, um, meaning that we're seeing higher rates of those who are sick, um, children who are getting really, really sick uh, from the coronavirus. And those children are children of color. Now, we used to hear about at the beginning of this, or I would say midway through where we are now, that children were getting Kawasaki disease. And um, how is that? We don't hear about that anymore. So why is that? And is this still a factor? And I understand black children are, we're getting that at a higher rate as well. That is correct. And thank you for the opportunity for speaking about that. Um, so what we actually in, in medicine, what we call that is, is it's known as MISC, so multi, um, multi-inflammatory um, syndrome of children. Uh, short, you may hear MIS-C on the news. So in full clarification, what that is, is a post-inflammatory process for children who were previously infected with coronavirus. And so the criteria, one of the criteria for that is a child who previously was positive for coronavirus, who now presents with symptoms similar to either Kawasaki disease or um, shock. And so I'll go over that real quickly. So Kawasaki disease is, is, is different than 
MISC. Um, so they're similar, but they're not the same. So Kawasaki's disease is an inflammatory disease that affects um, the medium-sized vessels of the body. Um, and some of those vessels, uh, such as the coronary artery, supply blood to the heart. Kawasaki's disease in particular uh, normally affects um, the Asian population uh, greater than any other racial population. And what happens is we don't know what particularly causes it. We think it might be a virus that triggers it, but it causes an, an inflammatory process in which you get red eyes and a strawberry tongue and a rash. And the scary part of Kawasaki's disease is that it can cause inflammation of the heart um, and create heart failure in children with otherwise normal hearts. Um, and so we watch out closely. So Kawasaki's disease has been around for a while. We watch out closely for that. What this post-inflammatory disease of coronavirus does is has a similar effect to the vessels in, in children's bodies and the vessels around the heart. And so these kids can go into organ failure and end up being really, really sick. Um, and so they can look like a child who has Kawasaki's in the sense they may have the red eyes and the rash and the strawberry tongue and the swollen glands. But what's different is these kids had uh, coronavirus prior. And now this is after the coronavirus has left, the body's kind of reacting to the damage that the coronavirus has left behind. The immune system is still kind of revving up and causes this what we call post-inflammatory um, response. The other thing that can happen is kids can get really sick in the sense of they, um, their hearts beat really fast and they're what we call in shock or hypotensive. And so they don't get blood to, to the systems that need them, such as the heart and the kidneys and all those organs begin to fail. And then they require support, intensive support in the hospital. We saw a lot of this at the beginning, uh, particularly in New York and DC in the beginning of the pandemic. It's still very much um, around, and you are right, it affects children of color more, not so much in the news. Uh, locally, we're not seeing as much uh, of this, but it, it very much exists. What I want to make clear is it's not the same as coronavirus. It's not like when a, when a child is positive for coronavirus gets this disease. This happens after a child has basically um, had coronavirus, has uh, it's post the infection. So it's what we call post-inflammatory process. So it's kind of like what happens afterwards. So a good, uh, a good example would be if uh, before um, penicillin, when, when people used to have strep throat and they didn't get treated for their strep throat, you know, a few years later, they might get what's called rheumatic fever. And you still get it in developing countries where um, this, the bacteria uh, create some inflammation and, and you can get heart disease and things of that nature. Now, because of modern medicine, we don't see rheumatic fever so much anymore, but this post-inflammatory process is kind of similar to that. Does it still exist? Yes, it very much still exists. Is it in the height of the media? No. Um, are there extremely high rates? No. Is there a health disparity? Yes. Uh, so children of color, once again, both for coronavirus and this post-inflammatory process um, are getting it at higher rates. Okay. So Chuck, would that put children low on the priority for getting the vaccination? Yeah. And Dr. Sylvia will probably be able to talk to this as well, but currently the, the current um, vaccines are not indicated for um, children uh, age 16 and under, or under the age of 16. So children don't get the vaccine. And again, that's even more reason for adults to be responsible. I mean, as parents, what do we want to do? We want to protect our kids. Well, the best way we can protect our kids is to protect ourselves, get the vaccine, 
um, so that uh, we can um, that we can protect our kids. Um, there's no timeline yet as to when um, children will be able to uh, receive a vaccine or even one of these mRNA um, uh, vaccines. Okay. Now, um, we heard about some side effects um, that are out there. Uh, what are they? And should we be concerned, especially for children that might get it later that are 16 and, and above? Is that a concern, um, Dr. Sylvia? Yeah, so I, I could speak for myself and I could speak for many of my colleagues that have recently received the vaccine over the past few weeks. Um, so certainly, um, like many vaccines, there are side effects, um, particularly, you know, within the first uh, 24 to 72 hours, you can have fever, chills, muscle aches. And that's what a lot of us have experienced. I personally didn't experience that. My personal experience was that I had a very sore uh, left arm, similar to what I would say, similar to the tetanus shot where it felt really sore. And I exercised that a bit. The next day I had muscle aches and pains. I went to work, but I did take some ibuprofen because I felt kind of icky. And then uh, like a day or so later, had a little bit of headache and dizziness and and felt fine since haven't had any kind of uh, symptoms um, related to the vaccine that I'm aware of since then. A lot of my colleagues have uh, noted and documented fevers, chills, night sweats, uh, muscle aches and pains, some dizziness, um, maybe a little bit of uh, in the way of numbness and tingling. But most of the people that I've talked to, all those symptoms have resolved. Actually, all the people that I have spoken to, can't speak for everybody who's received the vaccine, but for those colleagues of mine that I have spoken to and interacted with, all of those symptoms resolved within the 72 hour mark. Um, you know, depending on the, the vaccine, there are certain concerns for certain types of populations. So you've heard that um, patients who uh, may have a history of anaphylaxis or a severe allergic reaction um, probably should, you know, there have, during the trial, there was notable anaphylaxis for the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, while being uh, administered in Britain, uh, there were at least, I think, five to six folks who had uh, significant anaphylaxis or allergic reaction who were then subsequently treated and fine. Um, so these are some considerations uh, that we may want to have moving forward. The good news is as, as time goes on, we're going to have more in the way of vaccine choices. And, and so one or more vaccines may have one or more type of side effects more than the other. Uh, but I will say about the vaccine side effects um, overall is that compared to COVID, um, overall, it's been very mild to minimal, um, uh, even, even with the trials. And, and I'll let Mr. Davis speak more, excuse me, to the data uh, of that. Um, but but that's, that's been my experience. Um, okay. okay. Would you like to comment about that? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I think with with respect to the to the to the vaccines, there's one other important note, and that is that the vaccine is not 100 percent effective uh, within the population. So it's one of the reasons why this pandemic is going to go on for a little while longer. So if we use, for instance, the Moderna number and we say 95 percent effective, that means for a million people that receive the vaccine, 50,000 uh, people, um, the vaccine will, will will prove to not be effective or have a, uh, a, a reduced efficacy to the point where um, they would still be uh, potentially susceptible to, to, to COVID. Um, so, th- you know, that's, that's important to note. It's, it's not 100%, um, but it's, but 
those numbers are still you know incredibly high given that most vaccines are typically in the 65 you know percent range or so typical influenza uh, vaccine maybe a little bit higher um so it, it's it's really impressive um in terms of what we've been able to accomplish with the with the vaccine the last point is the side effects um you know they're they're largely manageable uh like dr silver was saying uh the most severe um that's been seen thus far has been um anaphylaxis uh, at 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 least within the the healthcare settings where the where the vaccines are currently being distributed um you know they have um you know epinephrine crash cart all those things on you know on on premise so if you were to have a reaction a really 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 bad reaction you know you're you're in a environment where um something can be done uh and and, and quickly and you're watched after you're given the after you're, you're given the shot you don't want to get covid um because you know i mean you don't i mean even even if covid doesn't kill you and you know and i mean it's it, it you know in terms of the numbers your chance of death from COVID is relatively small we still are looking they're still trying to understand what the long-term effects are you've got people with their teeth falling out after they've had COVID. you've got kids you know now showing up with something called COVID toes i mean you know you i mean you have people that are having um uh, myocarditis and they're having issues with their heart and circulatory issues afterwards it's just i mean since we don't understand it why mess with it if we have something that can protect us and like we said before, knowing that um, um, young kids can't get it, we need to be able to protect ourselves. Okay, let's talk about the mutations because um, I call this new mutation the "get it quick" edition. <laughs> because, <laughs> because uh, you know, but but the vaccine is supposed to be effective, even though the virus the virus will mutate as viruses do, right? Would you like to address that, um, Dr. Sylvia? Yeah, so you know, I will I will be fairly honest with you. There's not too much that I you know that I know um, about the, the current mutation. Um, I know it's been um, you know this is eerily similar to our conversation a year ago, where um, I, I know it's in Britain and there have been uh, to be found some cases here in the United States. Um, what I can say is that you know for the current strain, uh, SARS-CoV-2, that we're, we're dealing with here, um, and the rate of death that it's causing morbidity or mortality um, in, in conjunction with the three W's and, and the vaccine, um, and, and to create a herd immunity, so for about 80% of us to, to get the vaccine and continue practices, I think it, you know, we're still going to be able to slow this curve. Um, it, it does go to show that viruses are tricky little beast, uh, and that we should be, um, we should be on the lookout and, and gather some more factual information as it comes as to the mutation. And this is probably, this is why it is very imperative too, to continue doing the public health practices that we're doing as we begin to figure out, um, what's going on with this, um, mutant strain and how it relates to the vaccine. Um, because, because until then, um, what's really going to protect us are the public health practices, the wearing the masks, the washing the hands, the keeping the distance, the minimizing the social gatherings as mentally health wise hard as that is to do. Um, those are going to be some of our surest ways to continue to keep our community safe. 
Let's talk about some of those behaviors because you kind of addressed it earlier, Chuck. Um, I know as I scrolled down my Facebook timeline, I saw families getting together minimally 10 thick with no mask on, elders in the room that you know are vulnerable, um, just through caution to the wind, it seems anyway. I know many of us um, have been tested before we go out to visit family, but I saw someone write, it was uh, Dr. Kay Dingwell from Canada. She said, using a negative COVID test to decide if it's safe to go to parties is like using pregnancy tests as contraception. So let me just say that again for the people listening. Using neg a negative COVID test to decide if it's safe to go to parties is like using pregnancy tests as contraception. So that kind of, you know, made me think, wow, a lot of people are doing that. They're saying, I got a negative COVID test. I can go and visit my mom now, or I can go and, and visit grandma, or we can, I can go to this party because all of us got negative COVID tests. Um, can you, we start with Dr. Sylvia, can you address that? And then Chuck, I want you to talk about the behaviors that you found, because I'm wondering, will we ever get this under control with the behaviors that we, um, as Americans are used to, you know, doing on our daily basis that maybe we just can't behave. <laughs> Dr. So, so yeah, so there's a, there's a couple things to that. Um, one, you're right. So what, you know, what's really helpful in the way of testing is knowing that you're positive. Um, you know, negative testing. So I'll give you, we'll talk at once. Uh, I'll, we'll give you an, I'll give you an experience. I had a patient. Uh, I had a young patient who came in um, and was, uh, had COVID-19 exposure, uh, had a little bit of symptoms in the way of like cold symptoms, got tested, was negative. Um, the symptoms persisted, came back literally within 48 hours and tested positive, right? So symptoms worsened. And so what does that go to show you? So the, the test is a snapshot in time, right? Just a, that snapshot in that instance, um, whether you're testing positive for COVID or not. In, in order to test positive, your viral load has to be to a certain quantity. It has to be a certain amount. So you could still be technically have, have the COVID virus or just have been introduced to the COVID virus, but your viral load is not big enough to be detected on the test. So you're tested negative. And so that's why in this case, this particular patient tested negative two days prior, but was persistent, had worsening symptoms and came back and was tested positive. Now imagine if he tested negative two days and then went down to Disney World with his family for vacation because he tested negative um, and actually was positive two days later at the, you know, one of the largest theme parks um, in the country. Um, so we have to be, you know, very careful in the way that we look at testing and what it does and how it serves its purpose. Um, you know, I kind of always look at it as, you know, if you test positive, that's extremely helpful. If you test negative, it doesn't mean that you're out of the woods uh, quite yet um, because it's literally a tiny snapshot in time. Um, and it can, you know, the test that we have currently can only pick up to a certain viral load. And so if you haven't reached that yet, it doesn't mean that necessarily you don't have COVID. Um, and so um, that's something that people really, really, really need to think about, even with a negative test, that it's very imperative that we continue to do our public health practices. Okay. And Chuck, are our privileges and, and sense of freedom getting in the way of eradicating this virus? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why we're, you know, as a, as a, as a country, uh, you know, we're setting, we're setting new records, uh, you know, per capita. 
And, you know, to Dr. Sylvia's point, she's, you know, she's absolutely, uh, you know, correct in, in what she's, what she's saying um, with respect to, um, you know, the behavior. I mean, behavior is what drives this, this virus. And to your point, you know, can we, can we behave? Um, you know, the, 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 the reason why the vaccines are such a big deal is because um, it, it's the first time where we haven't had to rely on everybody doing the right thing. Um, and so when we look at, um, you know, different communities, and I'll, I'll share a story now. My wife is, uh, is a, is a um, physician as well. And uh, she's a Latina and works um, very heavily in the Hispanic community. And we were looking at, uh, at, at, at COVID and, uh, and positive cases within both the black and the Hispanic community. And what we found is that the uh, behaviors uh, are, are very, very similar. So, you know, in black families, Hispanic families, we like to get together. A lot of our community is around, you know, food and gatherings. Um, it's the way that we show our love. Uh, and so, um, what was uh, what was interesting is that when we um, did the outreach and and started confirming certain cases, um, we worked with uh, with a, a bunch of uh, community-based groups. And one of the things that we did, in addition to testing, was we also um, uh, did surveys uh, to actually understand what was driving. The, the behavior and to understand what the perceptions were because a lot of our behavior is based on a perception and the perception could be wrong. And so one of the perceptions was, well, I don't go and go to other, you know, other people's homes and do things with them, but it's okay. I mean, but, but I just see my auntie or I just see my Thea and that, and that's okay because they're a family member. So they're safe. I, I know how they live. Um, and, and still wind up catching COVID. Um, so, you know, you, you can't um, assume or, or, or approach um, being safe, um, you know, no inter, um, you know, contact between households means no contact between households. And it's incredibly difficult. It's hard, it's hard for, uh, it's especially hard in our community um, because a lot of times, you know, uh, you know, it, it we have that that big extended family with a grandmother or a grandfather and 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 combined care. Um, it's really really difficult. Um, that and also um, um, our social circumstances. So if we do get exposed and we do have to um, uh, and, and we do have to social distance and quarantine within within the home, if if we live in a smaller space or if our, we have a larger family, that's harder to do. Um, we did a study where we looked at the people where, where the transmission was rampant throughout the households. And we found that there was like this magic number of um, 2000 square feet less of the living space. Uh, and there was a the direct correlation to how fast uh, and the likelihood that people within the household would get it. Now it's common sense. If you live in a smaller house and you don't have an extra room where someone can isolate themselves um, while they have COVID, then you have a greater risk of, of spreading it. Um, so these are the things that we need to make sure that we're aware of within the community. Um, if, if you do get COVID, all is not lost, but then how do you prevent other people within your household uh, from getting COVID? And those are the kinds of discussions that I, I really don't hear 
um, you know, happening at, at, with the same level of volume and, um, and, and, and frantic concern as some of the other uh, conversations. If, if, if you get it, how do you, you know, how do you prevent everybody else from, from getting it? Um, you know, I think that, that's important. Right. Um, Chuck, let, let me ask you, the last number that I saw was that black Americans were four times more likely than white Americans to, to die of COVID-19. Is that true? Or is it a uh, yeah. different number? It's it's a little it's a little bit lower. Well, it depends. Um, the mm-hmm. national number is um, two point eight uh, times mm-hmm. more likely, but that's an aggregate number across the United States. If you go to a particular community, um, you know, parts of Chicago, um, parts of uh, California, where I where I live, that number is much higher. So um, it's really uh, the thing about a pandemic is you can look at the general numbers, but really a pandemic is a bunch of little epidemics and so in each community you'll have a a different rate of death uh, because it's the composition of the community if you uh, if you know if, if you take a particular area of chicago which might be predominantly black then the then the uh then the death rate might be you know five or six times as as much um so it really de- it really depends on the demographics of a given area but to 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 answer your question, you know, um, uh, you know, once again, in aggregate across the United States, that number on average is about two point eight times. Okay, all right. So, Dr. Sylvia, um, let's talk about Dr. Susan Moore because you you leaked her story or told her story. Can you tell us what happened to her and why her story is significant? Yes, um, I can, and so you know, want to, you know, start by thank you for the opportunity to talk about Dr. Susan Moore. I did not, you know, want to start off with, I did not know her personally, but, uh, you know, I don't feel like um, we need to, to tell the story. And I well, thank you for the opportunity to tell the story. And uh, um, I pray that, uh, want to let her family know that we are praying for them, in particular, uh, her 19 year old son. Um, and we are, we're blessed to have her in our community, meaning the medical community. And so twofold, um, or, or many fold is the Dr. Susan Moore story is very important. One, she's an African-American female family practice physician. And so in that she unfortunately meets that quota of the, of our black communities dying at higher rates, uh, particularly African-American women of the coronavirus of COVID-19. So that's one of the, the more obvious things about um, the death of uh, Dr. Susan Moore. What's um, equally as tragic is, is, her treatment on her way um, to leaving us. Um, so she, I am part of a group called a Physicians Mothers Group uh, on Facebook. And um, she was part of that group. And, and we share with each other many things related to family, related to medicine, as you can imagine, related to a lot of things and um, help one another out in many, many various ways. What she began to do is chronicle her experience as an African-American patient um, in the hospital um, system where she worked of how she was being treated. Um, And and that was the even more troubling, I think, aspect of of this. So particular examples that she brought out was that she was, she had COVID-19 and she was extremely sick. She had no lung disease, no lung disease. She had a significant neck swelling, her glands in her neck 
uh, were swelling, and that's something that COVID-19 can do. It can cause a swelling of your lymph nodes or your glands throughout your body as your immune system revs to kind of fight it off. And so she was in a lot of pain. And on top of that, she had the COVID-19 pneumonia that uh, Mr. Davis uh, briefly mentioned earlier. So she was in a lot of pain. COVID causes a lot of pain. It causes a lot of mo muscle pain and aches. Uh, I hear, you know, so that's where you cannot compare it to the flu at all. And she asked for pain medication uh, and she was seen as a pain seeking uh, patient in which most of our, a lot of our patients of color have to deal with that, that on a regular basis. And it's not brought into the light, particularly patients with sickle cell disease who if anybody requires pain medication. It's a patient who has to deal with a lifetime of bone pain because bone pain is one of the worst types of pains. But even within our sickle cell community, a lot of our patients have to deal with that, the idea of pain seeking in, in the midst of this opioid um, uh, epidemic. And so I, I, I have strayed a little bit. So that was one of the caveats that she chronicled was that she asked for pain med med uh, medication and, and she uh, needed it. Um, and, and she was told that uh, they thought she was pain seeking. Uh, they told her they were not going to give her the intravenous version, which is a stronger version of the pain medication. They could give it to her the version which she could take by mouth. Um, and then it took up to four hours to even get the pain medication. Uh, and that was just one of the many examples of how she was you know, treated differently as an African-American female and how uh, we could see these insidious signs or not so insidious signs of systemic racism in medicine that we still deal with on a regular basis. And, and, and hearing these stories as she was gasping for air. I mean, when you watch these videos, she's taking deep breaths in between telling the story. You can see she's in distress um, telling the story. And in the midst of that, to hear that the nurses and the physicians that surrounded her were not treating her equally or as a human being, as a patient, um, and knowing what we deal with in systemic racism in medicine is very heartbreaking to watch. Uh, it was not only the nurses that gave her a hard time, but the physician as well. And here she was a physician. Um, and not to say that, you know, people of certain uh, education status or socioeconomic status or professional status should gain more or better health than anybody else. But the sadder and scarier part is for those who are, don't know enough to speak up for themselves, uh, whether it be a language barrier, education, or just not being familiar enough with the disease process, how many of, more of those stories have gone untold, specifically during this COVID-19 pandemic, where they weren't getting the justice and the care that that they deserved. And so in her death, we appreciate her speaking up for our community and, and speaking to these things. Um, and these, you know, again, COVID-19 being that great revealer that on top of having to deal with coronavirus, still having to deal with being black and systemic racism in medicine um, was her, her powerful story that needed to be, needs to be shared with the world. We still have a long way to go in that arena. Right. So, you know, this is even more of a reason to get the uh, vac vaccines. We have to deal with not only the symptoms of, of COVID, like you said, but then the systemic racism on top of that. So getting the vaccine, hopefully, you know, you can keep from having to experience any of those things. Uh, but it's going to take a while, like you said, the rollout to get it. So even people like me, I'm, I'm going to have to wait a bit. Uh, to probably get this uh, vaccine, hopefully with the new administration, they have their plan for rollout that will um, uh, distribute all three vaccines pretty quickly. Now, 
just to go back a little bit, because I want to make sure we answer everyone's questions. Since it's not a live virus, they can't shed it to anyone else, correct? Just let's answer that definitively. Can it be shed or not, Dr. Sylvia? No, it is not a live virus uh, and it cannot it cannot be shed. You cannot get coronavirus from the vaccine. Again, when you hear media stories of people getting coronavirus after they got the vaccine, it's because they got it from the usual routes of getting the coronavirus and not from the vaccine itself. Exactly. Okay. so let me ask you if if there's anything else that's important to know about this virus specifically for black families that either you would like to speak to please this is the time to do it because we're getting to the closing of the show anything that you may have run across or you want to speak on let me know uh uh, chuck did we miss anything uh i I would just say i think for parents that are trying to you know especially as black parents dealing with with our, our children it's important for us to model um you know, the behavior. I mean, I've got two boys and, you know, I've had to have the talk with them about, you know, their behavior and how they're perceived. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if they ever do or encounter law enforcement, uh, you know, that's just, you know, that's, that's our reality. And the same goes, uh, the same is true for, uh, for the, for this virus. Um, you know, my kids, they want to, you know, they're, they're active in track and football and fencing and all kinds of stuff. And they want to see their friends and I get it. And when you're, you know, a, a teenager and you're young, you know, the whole world revolves around, you know, your, your, your social experiences. And it's been hard to be able to, you know, to tell them, Hey, listen, um, you know, we need to exercise some discipline and as hard as it is, um, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. There are certain things that you can't do because there's a risk. There's a risk to me. There's a risk to your mom. There's a risk to your, your grandmother. Um, you know, and, and they, they understand that, but I think that, um, modeling that behavior, um, we didn't say you can't do these things and then show up on Christmas at my mom's house for the gumbo fest. Um, I went, but I picked up the gumbo and I brought it back. Um, you know, we didn't sit there and, and eat the gumbo. So we have to learn to do things um, differently to protect ourselves. And I think that that's critically important. This is an opportunity to be honest with um, with our kids about um, about discipline um, and about um, sacrifice as hard as it as hard as it might be, um, you know, and 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 truth about what's really happening uh, with respect to this this virus and when things will get better um, and that we there that, that we have a certain amount of control uh, i think a lot of us have felt out of control and the fact of the matter is is that if we exercise um, a certain amount of of, of discipline um, you know we can start to feel like we have a little bit more control um, and we'll get through it um, we're, we're i mean things are definitely going to improve um, with with the with the with the vaccine because we don't have to rely as heavily on behavior but doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want to do the way we were doing it before. Um, we have to stay, we have to stay the course. Thank you for that. That was great advice. How about you, Dr. Sylvia? Yes, that was excellent. Um, you know, what I would say uh, to parents is, um, yeah, we need, we, we need everybody on the team. You know, this is a situation where we need everybody's help. We need everybody to practice the three W's as hard as it is. And is is equally poignant to note is everyone's having a hard time. We're all having a hard time with this in one way or another. Um, 2020 has been a pivotal year 
um, because of that. And, and so, no, it's not just you and your household that wants to see grandma and grandpa and mom and dad. I didn't get to see my parents this summer. Uh, I'm sorry, this, this uh, holiday season. Um, but it's literally life and death is in our hands um, with this epidemic, pa- pandemic. And we re- literally have to see it that way. Um, that is, it is a matter of life and death. And, it, you know, if I, if I had the power to choose to a certain degree, um, uh, I would, I would choose life if I could life, not just for myself, but for, for my loved ones, for my family members. Remember children, um, right now are not approved for the vaccine. The only way to protect them is doing the three W's and what we call herd immunity. Um, so getting about 80 to 90% of the population vaccinated to prevent, to protect those who will not be able to get the vaccine or can't get the vaccine right away. Those include cancer patients. So those of you who have family members who have cancer patients uh, who are on um, chemotherapy, um, the vaccine was not tested on pregnant women. So there are pregnant women who are uh, not not opting to get the vaccine as well uh, because of the lack of science and information behind it. So those are people in our community. And we know for the black community, we have a higher infant mortality rate without COVID-19. We have a higher rate of um, pregnancy complications for African-American females without COVID-19. And so we need to do our, our best to take care, care of one another. Uh, I have been personally chronicling um, on social media my um, experience with the vaccine so people could see a live person that received the vaccine and what are the side effects and what does it really do. And, uh, and I encourage everybody to inform themselves as, as in the case of what we're doing now with the back talk talk show um, with factual data from, from experts, um, not necessarily from your auntie or uncle who read something from some other magazine, but factual data to arm yourselves like you would in any other healthcare matter. Um, but we need each other. You know, the only way we're going to get rid of COVID is not just through scientists. It's not just through healthcare. It's one of the only pandemics where you need the entire community to combat this thing. And we are dying and it is real. Um, and so literally power to the people. Um, let's 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 get rid of this thing. I want to thank you both, Dr. Sylvia Owusu, Ansa, and Chuck Davis for coming on Back Talk today to talk to us about the COVID-19 vaccine for Black families. Thanks for tuning in to Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine. We'll see you soon.